Hello, welcome along. It must be that time of the week again when we're a little bit bored by life down on Earth. So it's time to test our brains and find out some of the smartest stuff around the solar system. This is the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan, where we explore the entire universe to learn some of those science secrets lurking in very mysterious, normally quite pitch black places. This week, we'll hear about life under the ocean and what some people are trying to do to keep it clean and creatures safe. If we end overfishing, we could actually increase our seafood catch production by about 16 million tonnes. And that's enough to feed millions more people a year. So when we take care of the oceans, the ocean take care of us. And that's the really exciting thing. Also, we'll take a trip to Deep Space High to find out how we measure types of weather across the galaxy. A lot of space weather which affects Earth is generated by activity on the surface of the sun. Sunglasses on, everyone! And I've got your questions to answer. This week, they are on how your body heals itself. And looking into your body, why does your stomach rumble? We'll find out. It's a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's start things off with your science in the news. Plans in Japan to release wastewater have sparked anger across the world. Now, back in 2011, over a decade ago, a tsunami damaged the Fukushima nuclear plant there. More than a million tonnes of treated wastewater has built up in their time, and the Japanese government wants to pump it into the sea. There's a lot of worry about what this will do to the state of the oceans and the marine life living there. Fishing groups are concerned that people won't want to eat any fish because they think it might be damaged by nuclear waste water. Now, I understand that when you've got a build-up of nuclear waste and wastewater, something needs to be done with it, but I'm not sure, are you, that dumping it into the ocean is the best thing to do? Uh, We're so conscious and we're thinking so much about how humans affect the planet at the moment. Just think what all that could do to marine life over in Asia. Last week, the world got its hottest temperature ever on record. The average across the world was 17 degrees Celsius on Monday. It was caused by the El Nino weather effect. This is where winds push hot air all around the world and carbon dioxide gas also in the atmosphere trapped a lot of that heat. Scientists are concerned about how warming temperatures will affect frozen ice in the sea, perhaps making it melt and causing sea levels to rise. Now, we've seen this for the last few years, right? When summers have got hotter and hotter and hotter. And this just shows the hottest day ever on record, on average, that we do need to keep thinking about what we are doing to the world and how maybe we can fix it. And finally in the news, this is mind-boggling, tough to get your head around. Scientists have seen the early universe in slow motion for the first time. Experts looked at data from supermassive black holes at the middle of early galaxies and used them to measure time at the beginning of the universe. They found out that when the universe was just a billion years old, just a billion years old, time seemed to flow five times slower than it does today. What's going on? Back then, though, time would have seemed normal, so a second was still a second. But for more than 12 billion years later, we feel that that early time seems to drag. It's being bent. Now, this is because of what Albert Einstein said almost 100 years ago. As the universe expands, time seems to move slowly. It's relative when there was much less stuff around. Let's get a brand new series on the show then. Checking in with one of our favourite gadget geniuses, a guru. 
Her name is Techno Mum. She's always here to answer your questions about anything tech you're thinking of. In this series, Techno Mum is looking at electric and hybrid cars. We're finding out about the exciting engineering behind the gadgets that help you get from one place to another with Tim and his mum, Techno Mum. Techno Mum, with the Institution of Engineering and Technology, advancing and sharing knowledge. All right, I'm Tim. My mum's an engineer and I call her Techno Mum. She's absolutely brilliant at explaining how things work. Tim, I said turn it off. It's tea time. (sighs) But she's definitely still a mum though. Last week we were stuck in traffic. There's only one thing I hate more than being stuck in traffic and that's going to the supermarket. Any ideas where we were going? You got it. The supermarket. All these cars burning up petrol and we're going absolutely nowhere. It's terrible for the environment. Come on, Mum. Cars are well cool and we can't help using petrol, can we? We wouldn't get very far if we put, I don't know, jam or lemonade in the tank. You don't have to use petrol. Not now there are electric cars. I mean, they're not perfect. The electricity has to come from somewhere and they do need charging up. But petrol is no longer the only choice. There are hybrid vehicles too. Are hybrids like a mix of things? Like a car crossed with a dinosaur? Pretty certain that wouldn't get you very far. You're right though, they are a mix of things. Some are called dual mode, where petrol and another fuel, like gas, share the work. We've seen the special pumps for them at the petrol station, remember? I'm not sure I do remember seeing these special pumps. I'm not exactly that interested in petrol pumps. Petrol stations are interesting for one thing. They have sweets and comics and that's all. But I'll remember to have a proper look next time. Other times they're a hybrid because they have more than one power source. So you'd have your mechanical combustion engine. That's the bit that goes boom, right? It's a normal car engine, yes. So you'd have the combustion engine and an electric motor. The really clever bit is the electric hybrids generate their own power as they travel about even using the heat that's created when they break, which is then stored in large rechargeable batteries and released when they need it. So hang on, cars run on electricity or with gas, but they still need petrol. So we do still all need petrol. No, you can get 100% fully, totally nothing but electric cars. What, like my remote toy cars running on batteries? Fortunately for you, engineers and scientists have come up with something with a bit more welly than your toy cars. Electric cars get their power from charging points. A bit like a mobile phone charger, just bigger. They're just one of a number of fuel-saving technologies, like cars that shut off automatically when you're sat still in traffic. Anyway, look, the lights have changed, we've arrived. Now to find a parking space. (sighs) Great. Or you. Behave or I'll make you try on school trousers. And talking of electric cars, look over there, at the back of the car park. Ta-da! It looked a bit like a colourful bollard. There was a screw cap part on it and a curly cable was coming out and was plugged into a perfectly normal looking car. It's an electric charging point for electric cars. They're all over the place these days. So there you go. Even here in the boring old supermarket, there's some pretty cool technology going on. And I wouldn't even have noticed without the help of Technomom. Can't I stay and watch the electric car charging? It's not doing anything. You might as well watch the fridge. Still more interesting than shopping. Come on, slow coach. Techno Mum, with the Institution of Engineering and Technology. Advancing and sharing technology. Let's do your questions then. I love this part of the show. 
If you ever have any question that you want answered, make sure you send it over to me as a voice note. You can do that on the free Fun Kids app, really easy. Or you can click the big record button that's over at funkidslive.com. It makes everything so simple so I can hear what you're thinking. I know your name and you can star in the show. The first question this week is from JJ. What's happening, JJ? Hello, my name is JJ and I'm seven years old. I would like to ask, why does your tummy grumble when you're hungry? Why does your stomach rumble when you're hungry? Thank you for this. Now, when you're hungry, your brain talks to your stomach. Maybe you've smelled some delicious food, a freshly cooked pizza with bubbling cheese, maybe some pineapple. Maybe you've got a whiff of some freshly baked bread. So your brain senses that and it thinks you're about to eat. So it sends messages with hormones and chemicals to your stomach, telling those organs to get ready, telling them to prime up, to stretch, to limber, because there's going to be food in them soon. The grumbling you hear is the movement of those organs, your stomach and your intestines. Now, this happens quite a lot, but because your stomach is empty, the sound echoes around it a lot more. There's nothing in the way. There's no food or anything to muffle the noise. So it echoes and rumbles nice and clearly. JJ, thank you so much for the question. Let's get another one. This is from Lavender in Trinidad, who has left the question as a review over on Apple Podcasts. Lavender wants to know, how does your body heal itself when you get injured? Now, let's talk about what happens when you accidentally cut yourself. Your blood is amazing. You've got these things in there called platelets. They are tiny cells that travel around in your blood and they bind and join together when you are cut to stop you from bleeding too much. They clot it. Then white blood cells get involved. They remove the dead injured cells and they break them down. Then what happens is your skin cells divide up to form the new layer of skin that you need to heal. And the same kind of happens when you break a bone, really. The platelets in your blood, we've just spoken about them, they form around the break to build a bumper layer to protect it. Then the two parts of your broken bone, the cells in them start to divide towards each other. They've got a brilliant mechanism when they know they need to make more of themselves. So they just split in two. Those cells start to divide towards each other, working from both ends to meet in the middle, Lavender. And that's how your body is brilliant at healing itself. Thank you for the question. If you've got something you want answered next week on the podcast, make sure you leave it as a voice note. Really easy to do. Just get to the free Fun Kids app. Send us a note there or you can record it at funkidslive.com. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. This week, we're looking at what's in the ocean, how we can keep it safe and sustainable too. Lauren Hiller is from the Marine Stewardship Council and joins us now all about sustainable fishing. Lauren, thank you for being there. Thanks so much for having me Uh, and nice to uh, speak to you on the podcast. Really excited. Sustainable fishing is something that we hear a lot about, but I, I don't really know much about what it does or the impact of it. So just start off. What's the problem in our oceans with the fish that we're eating? Of course, that's a a really uh, good question. Uh, Oceans are essential to life. They cover more than 70% of the planet's surface. They regulate our climate and supply much of our oxygen that we need to breathe. They're also home to an extraordinary variety of life. And much of this life is essential to sustain people's livelihoods and ensure uh, food security for millions that rely on fish as their main food source or main source of protein. 
But, you know, the problem is, is that our oceans are overfished. Latest figures show that a third of our fish stocks are fished beyond unsustainable levels. And that's, you know, really concerning because, like I said, so many people uh, rely on fish, uh, you know, as a a food source and a, a protein source, but also for their jobs and and their livelihoods as well. So when we think about uh, sustainable fishing, that really means making sure that there is enough fish in the ocean so that we continue to fish indefinitely, making sure that we protect the habitats and the different uh, marine species and wildlife that rely on the ocean, and also safeguard uh, the oceans for those that rely on it for for their jobs and their livelihoods as well. Uh, And that's what uh, we're doing at the MSC, the Marine Stewardship Council. Uh, Our vision and mission is that the world's oceans are teeming with life and seafood supplies are protected for future generations. So that's the big dream. How Are you going about doing that, though? We can hardly just walk around all the ports around the world making sure people have got their own allotment of fish. What are you doing? Of course. So, you know, looking after the ocean starts with all of us and and we can all make a deal to help the ocean and protect it uh, as well. Uh, The Marine Stewardship Council is an international non-profit organisation. And what we do is we recognise and reward efforts to protect oceans and make sure there is enough fish left in the future. So, you know, what that means for perhaps you and I or, or those at home that are looking to get some fish for their Friday night tea, what we encourage you to do is look for the blue MSC Eco label on your packets of fish. And that's a, a blue fish label. You can see it on many different products in canned fish, fresh, frozen on your fish fingers, or perhaps out at your local fish and chip shop. And what that means is that your fish has been sustainably sourced from a well-managed fishery, and you can make sure that you're helping protect the ocean whilst you're enjoying healthy, delicious, sustainable fish. If we look at trees, when people maybe cut down a lot of trees, they'll make some effort to plant new ones. They kind of hope to boost this cycle. Uh, is there a similar thing with fishing or are we have we just got a certain amount of fish and when they're gone, it's awful, but they are gone? Or do you encourage fishing people to kind of uh, try and give birth to new fish? I don't know. Is that possible? Uh, well, I, I guess, yeah. Breed. Is Breed. Yeah, no, uh, I, I like your analogy there. That's, really, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. So obviously we know there are there are lots of fish in the ocean um, you know, and, you know, fish do have to breed and, and reproduce. That doesn't happen overnight. That takes time. Um, but fisheries that are operating sustainably they make sure they're not catching too much fish at any one time. Uh, so, for example, they're making sure that they can, uh, they're catching fish but not taking too much so that when they go out for their next trip, they can still catch again and make sure that they can, you know, bring fish to the market and, and sell it on. So they're not taking too much more than they should and they're making sure that that, that fish population can breed and reproduce. And uh, there are many different examples of fisheries all around the world which are doing great things to make sure that they're protecting our oceans. Cornish Hake is a great example. You know, 20 years ago, that fish uh, fishery was, you know, the stock was very low, there wasn't much fish. They put in a very strong plan to help recover that stock. And now the stocks are double to what they once were and that fishery is thriving. So it just shows that great management, looking after our oceans, we can make sure you know we can continue to eat fish for the future. What kind of things can fisheries do aside from stop fishing as much? What are the bigger plans that they do? So they look at the the long term uh, picture, really. So how much fish is in the ocean and how long can 
they can they continue to fish without you know having a detrimental impact on that stock that's one of their big priorities they also make sure uh, that they're not having a negative impact on the environment so what fishing gear are they using and what impact does that have on the surrounding ecosystem uh, and what impact does that have on the surrounding environment you know it's not just fish that are, are in the ocean there are lots of you know great wildlife plants fauna flora that all rely on this ecosystem and want it to remain healthy uh, so they make sure that, it, that these fisheries look after the environment too and that they're also well managed so making sure they comply with any relevant laws uh, and making sure that if anything does change they're ready and prepared to perhaps reduce their fishing effort if perhaps the stocks have dropped beyond a sustainable level so they're doing lots of different things uh, to make sure they have a positive impact on the environment there's a lot that we need to be worried about, it feels like at the moment. And we're being told that we need to, you know, cut down our meat usage, cut down how much energy we use. We need to walk and cycle instead of uh, getting in a car everywhere. And, and I guess the worry is sustainable fishing can kind of be forgotten about. Why do you think it is a really important crisis that we need to strongly look at? Yeah, I know. I know. And I, I think people do get concerned about it. And, you know, I, I realise some of what I said is a little bit worrying and it definitely is a massive global challenge. We know that overfishing is a problem, but we know that, you know, if we end overfishing, we could actually increase our seafood catch production. So by about 16 million tonnes, and that's enough to feed millions more people a year. So when we take care of the oceans, the ocean take care of us. And that's the really exciting thing. And I know for some people it might not be a priority, but for millions of people around the world, they rely on it as a you know a priority source of protein, which keeps them healthy. Um, and many people around the world also rely on it for their livelihood, so for their jobs. And that's how perhaps they make money uh, and then feed their family as well. Uh, but also, you know, a really important part is that fish and seafood is really, really healthy. It's full of many uh, vitamins, nutrients and minerals, which are essential for our health and development. Sustainable fishing really does contribute to the overall health and well-being of our ocean. So having it as a priority is really important. And my message for your listeners today is that you can make a difference. You can choose sustainable fish with the blue fish label and make a difference. What about fish deep, deep, deep down in the ocean? Because there's so much about the sea that we really have no idea of what's going on. I, I don't know how true that is, but they say kind of like 5 to 10% is really what we understand. And mm-hmm. deeper down beneath that, it's all a mystery to us. As time goes on... Can we look down there for different types of fish? Well, we might be able to. Um, you know, different types of fish are caught in different ways and caught at different depths. You know, for example, shellfish, you know, scallops or clams and cockles, they're caught in more shallower waters. Um, but, you know, there are deep sea uh, or pelagic fish which are caught much deeper in the ocean. And, and fisheries and scientists, they've been very innovative in the way that they catch these fish by doing it sustainably. And I think as we go on in time, uh, we'll discover much more. Many of the people rely on uh, fish and seafood and we are in a growing population. We're estimated to reach about 10 billion people in the world by 2050. So we need to make sure that we have enough fish to feed that growing population and perhaps we'll have to go a bit a little bit deeper in the future but that might mean trying new different types of fish because we're not sure what's what's down there uh there, there is so much that you can do just start off looking for those the, the little blue labels with the tick on it uh lauren hiller from the marine stewardship council the msc thank you so much for joining us thanks so much have a great day 
For this week's Dangerous Dan, where we look at some of the most mean, weird, strange and brilliantly devastating things in the world, we are headed across the globe to the Caribbean to visit one of the most dangerous islands in the world. Saba is an island just north of South America in the Caribbean. It's actually a public body of the Netherlands. They kind of have it and they rule it. It's got a mountain on it, Mount Scenery, which stands 887 metres high. It's about five square miles big, full of steep cliffs, palm trees, a few beaches, strange lizards, odd bats and other unique creatures. They've got a wide range of sharks in the oceans nearby, but that's really not why it's so dangerous. Saba lies in the Hurricane Belt, which is a stretch across the world known to have a lot of storms. Because of the hot temperatures, the sharp winds, it's placed in the ocean lying near the equator. Because of all that, a lot of hurricanes grow nearby, and that's what makes it dangerous. It's been hit by more major storms in the last 150 years than any other place on Earth. They get one huge one every three years, which is a lot. And it's only five square miles big. They've had almost 70 serious hurricanes in just over a century. So because of these hurricanes, which batter the island with rain and wind, tear down houses and trees, that means that Saba Island in the Caribbean gets its place on our Dangerous Dan list. Let's travel up to the smartest school in the solar system. We are heading back to deep space high. It's so smart, it's a genius. Loads of people there know everything that's happening all around the universe. You've got Professor Pulsar, they are in charge. And in this series, we're learning all about space weather. Sam, Stats and Quark are learning all about how it can affect life on Earth and the atmosphere around it. But with all the strange types of space weather, how do we measure it? How do we know what to expect? Deep Space High Intergalactic Weather Watch. So, we've been finding out about space weather. Anyone know how we measure it? And how we know what's going on up there? Um, by looking out of the window? That's how I tell what the weather's like back home. This morning, there was a particularly heavy firestorm. Is that why you were wearing oven gloves? They're thermal digital shields. Not oven gloves. Settle down. You're right, Quark. Observing is how we measure space weather. But it does present a few special challenges. If you remember, a lot of space weather which affects Earth is generated by activity on the surface of the sun. Sunglasses on, everyone. It's crazy how up close you can see all the solar flares, but back at home on Earth it's just, well, a little yellow ball. We would have to use a telescope to see these flares from Earth. Bingo, Sam. Telescopes are the main way we observe solar activity, such as sunspots and flares. Um, hello? You aren't meant to look directly at the sun, and certainly not through a telescope. It could blind you. Correct. Scientists use special filters to ensure they don't damage their equipment or, more importantly, their eyesight. Uh-oh, looks like we're observing a solar flare in progress. Buckle up, everyone. Now, as we've 
you're finding out, solar winds like these are a big part of the space weather in the universe. But even though we can feel the effect... You're not joking. I feel sick. Not quite what I meant, Quark. Even though we can feel and sometimes see the effects they have, they themselves are invisible to the naked eye. Well, that's when you need a radio telescope. Or an infrared telescope. Or even an X-ray telescope. Cool. Are they like X-ray specs? Can they see through walls? Behave, Sam. Stats is right. Those sorts of telescopes can pick up waves our eyes can't see and help give us even more information about the universe. And infrared telescopes are particularly handy because they also give us information about the temperatures. And don't forget, telescopes don't need to be on a planet's surface. Quite often they are on satellites where the images they create are affected by a planet's atmosphere. Look, we're passing one now. Now, it's all very well being able to see what the space weather is doing right now. But how do we know what's coming up? Well, we have weather forecasts every day on Earth. For the normal weather, I mean. Wow! You can see the future? Earth must be full of psychics. I don't think so. I think meteorologists look at patterns and evidence to figure out what's likely to happen, but they don't always get it right. And it's exactly the same for space weather. Solar winds and flares from the sun tend to happen in 11-year cycles. And so by observing where we are in a cycle, we can get an idea if there's likely to be more or less activity in the coming weeks. I was just going to say that I predict that it's the end of the lesson. I must be psychic too. Class dismissed. Deep Space High, Intergalactic Weather Watch. With support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Find out more at fungislive.com slash space. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you've got anything sciencey that you want answered next week, make sure you leave it as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. We've got tons of other science uh, series, loads more series actually, that you can hear. You've heard some today. We've got tons more on the free Fun Kids app wherever you get your podcasts, Google, Spotify. They're at funkidslive.com too. And mate, and Fun Kids, who are a children's radio station from the UK, listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com.